Welcome to the Cinematologist Podcast. I'm Neil Fox, and joining me as ever is Dario Linares. Hello, Dario. Hello, Neil. How are you? I'm really good. How are you? I'm good. It's really nice to sit down for five. It feels like the first time I've kind of sat down and had a breather all day long and uh, had a, a weekend away in Germany at a conference, which is absolutely fantastic podcasting conference. Um, where you were a keynote speaker? Yeah, where I gave a, a slightly rambly uh, keynote, um, but you know, it's that's fine. Embrace the messiness of uh, sound communication is what I say. But um, yeah, it's it's good because it kind of solidified some ideas. But what was really nice was there was a lot of questions afterwards, and a lot of the questions required a kind of clarification that that was good for me to clarify myself what I was actually saying. But then also. What, what was interesting that w- was that I think I brought quite a few people in the audience to a new place on podcasting. I mean, I don't want to sort of sound a bit, you know, look at me kind of thing, but you know what I mean? It was like, we need to move beyond the sort of ways in which podcasting has been spoken about because it's moving into a new phase. And yeah. that's kind of where we were getting to, which was nice. Great. That sounds really cool. Yeah. And that's what a keynote should do, isn't it? Ideally, you know, is be that focus for the kind of the proceedings of a conference. So yeah, that's really exciting. Yeah, and, and it was nice also to hear people say that they listen to the cinematologists and, and you know, they know about our know about our recurring themes, which is kind of interesting. It's the first time I've heard that. People were saying, oh, yeah, you talk about a lot about this theme on the podcast and that theme and stuff like that. So Anything it, in particular? Yeah, well, actually, one of the conference organisers actually mentioned to me that she was nervous because she's heard me diss conferences on the oh. podcast. So I said, no, don't worry about it. You know what I mean? This has, been, this has been fine. This has been, in fact, it's not been fine. It's been really good. So, uh, yeah, thanks to um, Patrick and Alan for uh, looking after me and, and organising a good event. Great stuff. Well, uh, we uh, are going to head straight in to today's episode, I guess, because there's, there's a lot to cover. Do you want to let our listeners know what they've got in store? Okay, so today is our London Film Festival edition. Um, and as usual, the London Film Festival falls exactly at the wrong time of year for me to be able to get to a lot of movies. I mean, I managed to see four films in the end, but it's right at the, the beginning of term. So I was thinking, how can we um, engage with the festival and, and sort of get a take on as many films as possible, but it not be a real you know difficult episode to put together? So luckily I got... Um, I sent an email to a friend of yours, Kate Taylor, who's a um, festival programmer there, one of the senior programmers, and also uh, Michael Blythe. Um, and they very graciously agreed to talk to me about the festival. And we did a long form interview, which you can actually hear on the Patreon for it. So if you want to hear the longer chat about the London Film Festival kind of in context, um, then you can subscribe for the very reasonable amount of two fifty a month, a lot, and then you'll get all of our um, all our bonus material. But yeah, just um, talk to them about the London Film Festival, about the process of programming, and the context of the festival generally. So I'm going to play maybe ten minutes of that um, first of all. So that's what you'll hear first, and then after that, I sat down this morning with Savina Petkova and James Matra, who are two young film critics slash academics who are navigating their way through the uh, murky waters of um, freelance film criticism and trying to get paid for that. So um, we invited them on and uh, um, and they were absolutely brilliant, really articulate going through some of the their top picks. And there was quite a, um, a few films that crossed over in terms of films that we'd all seen or, or two of us had seen, which was which was really nice. And, and we, we sort of, they discussed the films, what they thought of them, but also 
really nicely sort of put them in context for us in terms of um, why why they're interesting films because of the director or because of the social context or how they relate to um, what's going on politically or what might be the sort of the things that are of interest to contemporary filmmaking you know what I mean in terms of what, what people are concerned with um, in terms of filmmaking itself you know I can talk about sort of broad how we relate film to to society and culture and all of that kind of thing but but yeah it was a, a really really nice chat and great to have both of them on I mean James has been a long time supporter I mean he's, he's a former student of ours and and Savina we met at Film Philosophy who's you know really bright articulate um, woman who who is really great to hear what she thought yeah I think it's a really great overview and kind of you know kind of moment of capture for of, of the festival for the podcast you know it's exciting to be able to to do it and yeah really great to have some more new voices uh, added to the roster like you say we've we've known these guys for a little while uh, in various capacities so it's really good to have them on and and hear what they have to say and yeah really really exciting conversations so uh, this is the cinematologist present the london film festival So in terms of the London Film Festival and where it sits in relationship to the other festivals, you know, obviously with it being London, it's a big, huge festival. But I don't know, again, without sort of disparaging it or anything like that, there seems to be sort of a direction through which films go, where premieres are. Then you've got the big three European ones. Toronto kind of seems to kick everything off. I mean, where do you do you worry about things like that, or is that part of a consideration of where is London sitting in that in this whole direction towards the Oscars? Let's say, you know what I mean. Eventually, yeah, I think um, for for London audiences, and you know, increasingly, kind of when we can do UK wide stuff as well, um, that's less of a concern than for right. the for the industry. I think we're in such a fortunate place because we're. Um, you know, a UK minimum, a UK premiere is our minimum for feature films, and in fact, no, no premiere for short films. But that means that we can select from the beginning of the year, so we can sure. show some of the most exciting stuff from pretty much all of the major festivals. Um, but because the festival has grown a lot and it's become a really, a really kind of key launch pad for things like the award season. The fact that in London we have the um, third biggest concentration of Ampass voters outside of New York and Los Angeles means that when people show their films here, they can often also do a screening for Ampass voters in London or for right. BAFTA voters, and they have their talent around to do kind of Q and A's for those. So that's definitely key, and we we see that particularly in things like the what was the um, Foreign Language Oscar and is now the Best International Film Oscar. We often have quite a kind of high hit rate in terms of the right, films gotcha. that get um, put forward by their different countries. So that's that's important. And, and we do also um, have quite a few world premieres, European premieres and international premieres. Um, but I think it's what's really key for us is that, you know, London's an incredibly metropolitan city. And what you want is like the best films that you can find for that variety of audience. Sure. So um, it could be that it's a film that has has shown at another festival and that is is premiere wise, maybe it isn't the, the freshest, but to mm. that audience, it's going to be the freshest. Yeah, it's going to mean something. Yeah, 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 yeah. So um, I think we're in a good position Certainly, in terms of launching films, the the gala strand is you know yeah, yeah, yeah. is pretty good. We had a good strike rate with our surprise film recently as well, but um, 
yeah, I think the main thing for us is having a really vibrant audience festival and then building up the audience, um, the industry offering as well, yeah, which yeah. has also grown hugely in the past five years. Yeah, I mean, it's, it seems to me, because I've been to Berlin quite a lot, and there, there seems to be sort of more comparison between London and Berlin than there may be between London and Venice or, or Cannes. I don't know, would you would you say that's the, that's the case? And as, in terms of it being a kind of industry city festival... <laughs> Do you know in that in in that way, or does I mean, do, 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 is there really no comparison? I sort of projecting that. Well, I think Berlin has a market, a yeah. formal market, which yeah, yeah. is incredible. And I think with us, we don't have plans to build a market, but what we do want is to make sure that the films that are showing in the festival have the best possible opportunity to get distribution, right. and also to be a real launchpad for um, British work because that's something that we can do that's kind of yeah, unique. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, this year we've got a, a, an amazing kind of selection of first features and um, and returning directors, a really kind of vibrant selection of kind of UK work. So mm. it's, it's key to us that all of our international guests and visitors and as part of the industry programme that we're connecting kind of UK talent with yeah, international yeah, yeah. talent, yeah. Um, be they producers or sales sure. agents. There's a core team, a uh, programme team that work Full time in the in the festivals department. So myself and Kate um, and our colleague Law and Trisha Tuttle, who's the director of the festival, yeah. and our assistant uh, programmer Manish Agarwal, um, and the five of us we work year round on the program. But then we also work with a vast array of other program advisors. So they might be regional specialists or specialists in certain type of filmmaking, shorts programmers, experimental people. You know, so we we use a lot of different. Um, work with a lot of different people who bring in a lot of different expertise and so throughout the year we will as Kate said we'll go to different festivals we have uh, submissions that are sent directly to us we reach out to sales agents distributors we work with them so we basically do what we can to see as much work as we can throughout sure. the year and we have a, a kind of system in place when we are programming of, of second viewing, yeah, yeah, second yeah. viewing, third viewing, fourth viewing. Sure. So if something is seen by one of the advisors or one of the core team and we like it and we think it's something that might work for us, then someone else will take a look at it. So then we can have a dialogue about it. Yeah, Nothing's yeah, yeah. ever programmed that one person has seen, has an opinion on, and then it makes it. And that's that. Every, <laughs> exactly. Everything has to be a dialogue. Everything right. has to be a conversation. Everything has to be an argument, you know, whatever yeah, yeah, it might yeah. be. We write notes on all the films which we yeah. share with each other. So I feel like it's really important for us that no one is programming in isolation. Sure. And, you know, when you're working with so many different people, you know, we have, I think it's around kind of 40 or so, is it? Including the submissions. In, yeah, yeah, including yeah. the open submission. Yeah, yeah. It's around kind of 40 or so people. So there's a lot of work being viewed and a lot yeah. of information. So it's really important for us that that information is being shared and it's being digested by everyone. Do you do a lot of shit screenings in a cinema? You sit together and you talk afterwards, or is it mainly screeners when people have got time? It's mainly screeners. Right. Um, so mainly kind of watched independently. But um, yeah, sometimes there's DCPs available and we're lucky to be in the BFI South Bank so we can watch them here. Yeah. So yeah, whilst it's it's always best to see something in the cinema, and obviously we also watch loads of stuff at festivals. Right. Um, I'd say most of our viewing comes from um, comes from links, and sometimes at quite an early stage, sometimes at kind of work in progress kind of stage, if that's you know as finished as it's going to be. Sure. And we're quite used to that, and quite used to imagining you know how the, if there's going to be more sound or more grading or more special effects, then making sure that we kind of take that into account. Well, okay. Yeah, know yeah. Yeah. What's yeah. left to do. Yeah, I mean, uh, that's an interesting point. I mean, how how far away do you think festival films, like if you're talking about a big mainstream film, 
when it comes to a festival, is there often quite a lot still to do and you're, you're getting a kind of preliminary cut or do directors not want to give away how far that that, that is away? Well, I think um, uh, Scorsese changed the uh, running time officially last week on uh, the oh, really? So I think I think we're all kind of <laughs> cutting it a bit fine with some films. But yeah, no, yeah. most most films are, uh, are complete in time. Because yeah, yeah. of the calendar, really, because sure. people know that if you're going to do a kind of premiere in Toronto and then a European premiere with us then it's got to be, it's got to be yeah. finished yeah so um there are very few that um mm. that are too close yeah. to the wire yeah and again this might be a slight a slightly tricky question and we'll see, see see whether you think so what sort of percentage of the films are actually really a discussion about whether they're in or out and how much is it's Martin Scorsese's The Irishman it's in well, it had to be seen. Yeah. So, so but do you know what I'm saying? It's kind of like there must be certain films where kind of almost before they're seen, well, it's Martin Scorsese. You yeah. always have hopes. Yeah. So um, <laughs> in, in, in December, we start thinking about what are the films going to be in yeah. the following year. And there's all these websites now, makes our job very easy, that are like the um, most anticipated films of 2020, or I guess for next, next year. And you kind of go through those and we build up a database. And by the time we close the program, that database will have about 2,000 films on it. Yeah. And it's a mix of the films that we've seen and been sent and the ones that we've kind of read about, dreamed about, been mentioned in yeah, the yeah, trade. Yeah, 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 so yeah. You, you have a hell of a lot of films in your imagination. Sure. But then you see them. And you're like... So, <laughs> I mean, yeah, we, yeah. no film goes in unseen. Yeah. No film goes in undiscussed. Yeah. So, um, and we're, you know, in terms of films that we have to show that's not something that we yeah. we really have you know right. you'd be surprised oh, that's interesting. but it's because you have long term relationships with sure. distributors and sales agents so in terms of people saying you know take this one and you have to take that one it's mm. just not something that no, I've come you, across yeah, here yeah. And, oh, right, you know, that's really I've been interesting been here 6 years yeah, so yeah, yeah. yeah i mean we've <clears throat> you know over the years of course we've turned down works by major directors and they're difficult conversations to have and they yeah, you know it might be you're turning down a film from a filmmaker whose work you really love whose work you've shown before you have a history a relationship with them with the festival but ultimately we are here to serve audiences yeah you know we want to be able to stand up in front of an audience before a film and talk about why we programmed it and mm. be genuine yeah. be real yeah. and that passion comes through and i think if you you know if we were a festival that we were just programming whatever because it was this name was attached mm. audiences would see that yeah, yeah you know yeah. i think you need to have that kind of integrity yeah, as yeah. programmers and, and i think it's something that we definitely maintain throughout and yeah so every film is a discussion and nothing yeah gets a free pass well, that's interesting you know it's because i because i think that there are, you know sometimes there can be that perception that oh this person is just going to go mm. in so it's, it's interesting that you uh, you say that so um Obviously, there are lots of different strands, and they're collectivized in this in this way. If you, if you get the programs out now, and you can see that there's the I've written them down here. I'm not, you don't have to go through all of them, but the cult, dare, thrill, debate, love, laugh, family journey, create, and treasures. And these are the sort of collectivizing mm -hmm. words that you've and used to describe and right and experimenter as well. So, so in terms of the I don't want to call them the smaller elements of the of the festival, but things like the short film program. And the more experimental stuff, and the the outside events program, like you know, how much of a big part of the festival has that become? Because again, it's it always seems to be expanding every year. Those elements. 
Well, I suppose, um, I mean, we call the, the strands of, are the main program. Yeah, they're the main program. Um, I mean, well. yeah, so so the, the, the structure is to have the um, the galas and the competition strands. Yeah. And the competition strands are where we really um, put forward what we think are representative of the most exciting cinema being made this year. Yeah. Um, and that's, um, you know... Um, and I suppose they're kind of a microcosm of the way that we work across the rest of the festival. So looking for geographical diversity, looking for diversity of storytelling, different types of filmmaking. Have we got enough kind of discoveries and first time features and got enough big hitters and established uh, directors and talent? Um, and then the the main programme, which is in the strands, it's, it's really interesting to me how different festivals kind of organise their, mm. their strands and... I think when um, the the pathways came in that we use, it was quite controversial um, initially, but it's been really effective for us. I think. Why was it controversial? Sorry. Well, I think some festivals will go with um, you know like masters discoveries describing right. describing something about the films to do with the status of the director. I've got you. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. And that's fine yeah, for, yeah, you, yeah. for for you or I, and probably most people listening to the podcast, they'll receive a. Uh, a festival brochure and they'll know straight away yeah, yeah, oh, ah yeah. Japanese cinema I'm right. all over this yeah, yeah, yeah. or you know oh it's the new Atamagoyan yeah um, it assumes people are in the know already absolutely right um, or another way of organising it and a way that London Film Festival before was kind of was geographically being seeing that there were films there was kind of um, UK films there was European films there was kind of like the rest of the world films so there was it was again assuming that that was your pathway to come into film um, whereas actually when you ask people, you know, why do you come to see a film, particularly a film by someone that you don't know with no talent, the first thing they'll say is, well, what's it about? Mm. And what kind of film, yeah, is yeah, it? Yeah. what kind of experience will I get? Mm. So the idea of these pathways was to, um, just give people a little bit more flavor of like, what are the pleasures you might get from this film and to encourage people to take risks. So if you're okay, if you're looking at the program, it's like it's Thursday night, I fancy a thrill maybe I'll go and see the Indian film Chalikatu. I don't know anything about it, but I know that that's the part of the experience I'm going to get from it. Sure. So it's been really important to us because we want to build like younger audiences, new audiences, yeah, yeah. and to have people try things out. And, you know, with a, a program of like 220 films, you want to make it as easy mm. as possible for people to find the stuff that might, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, give them a yeah. kick. And you've got a bit... A- a big section this year of free events as well, haven't you? Because obviously there's always questions about accessibility in terms of not just getting hold of the tickets, but like pricing. And then, you know, there's been a lot of talk in just arts accessibility generally, isn't there? And it's great to see that, that those sort of free events being put on. Yeah, absolutely. It's really exciting for us to do that. It's something we've been doing for a few years um, as part of BFI Flair, um, where we've made sure that part of the programme, there is a kind of free element. And we've done a few things in the last few years where we've had talks or discussions about different types of queer cinema or discussions about specific films, whatever it might be. And we've had them here at Beer for South Bank in the library and you can just turn up and you can just drop in and out. We've had kind of all day symposiums that you yeah, can yeah, yeah. in and out of and things like that. And I think it's been such a great way to engage with audiences and to get people in the building and to get people to come to the festival, regardless of income, regardless of kind of, you know, what they, um, what they have access to. So it was really important for us that we wanted to do that as part of the uh, London Film Festival this year. And we've got a really nice little programme that we've put together of, of free events where we're discussing different kind of different types of um, 
having different discussions yeah, different, around cinema, yeah. whether it might be around kind of genre, around film criticism. Mm. You've got Bradshaw is doing his book, and then yeah. there's the um, there's the one about the uh, representations of consent and stuff like that, isn't there as well? Yeah. Which is quite a, a, a on topic, you know, Absolutely. subject area. And that, that one relates to a kind of short film program um, that I think is possibly in our uh, it's either in our love or debates strand. I can't remember the um, in an age of consent, which are, are films kind of looking at that particularly. But I think it's it speaks to real hunger from audiences we see it in in our q and a's uh where people are really interested and i'm always surprised not not surprised but i'm always like happily surprised with the kind of quality often at lff q and a's of uh of the, of the questions sure. and of, of people's engagement and i think people really want to expand and discuss not just online maybe because online they've got more of an appetite for, for talking sure. about films but talking about the art of films talking about the ideas in films yeah. and so that's really key. But the other thing that's great, which kind of also, you know, works super well in Flair, is to have um, free DJ nights. Oh, okay. So to yeah, have, yeah. you know, London's really difficult to get a sense of atmosphere mm. because it's so spread out. So sure. it's key to us to try and make sure there's somewhere where if at the end of the day you've seen a film, or, or you know, even if you haven't, you can come to the BFI South Bank on Friday or Saturday night have a dance, meet some filmmakers, you know, meet other people who've seen films and yeah, to have a bit of buzz. So right. that's also cool. Kate, Michael, thanks so much for taking the time out, especially in this busy period. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you. Hello, neighbor. to risk it all. I want to use what I'm good at. So welcome to the Cinematologist Podcast London Film Festival special. Um, I'm really delighted that I'm being joined by two young but eminent film critics, I want to say. Um, so next to me I have uh, Savina Petkova. Welcome, Savina. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me, Dario. And down the line, for the magic of technology, eventually, we have uh, James Maitre. James, nice to see you again. Yeah, it's, it's, it's great to finally be on. Yeah, I know we've been waiting for a little while to get you on, but Savina, this is your, your second time around after yes. the film philosophy uh, episode, so I'm glad we didn't scare you away too much. Definitely but not. Do you want to say a little bit about, um, a little bit about yourself and uh, you know who you're writing for and your relationship to film kind of more broadly, perhaps? Yeah, of course. Um, I'm a freelance film critic. We mainly write for Movie Notebook and... Also, I contribute to a website called Electric Ghost Magazine quite regularly. This is where I started from. And some other bits and bobs, for example, Girls on Tops and Screen Queens. And also, I am a full-time PhD student in film studies. And my thesis is on film and philosophy. So I like going in depth. Right. Well, that's good for us. So that's fantastic. And you've been, your, your PhD is on Lanthimos. It's um, on uh, contemporary European cinema with a big focus on Lanthimos. So I look at film festivals as a research field to get my new scoops and case studies. Oh, as well. fantastic. <laughs> Great. Well, that's obviously a, a very interesting subject. And like moving between academic film writing and popular film criticism, I suppose, is an interesting transition to make, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it's a bit schizophrenic, but um, I like it. it. It gives you more discipline. Okay. At least that. 
Great. So, James, yeah, tell us about your uh, your film writing. Yeah, I write for director's notes primarily. I'm a freelance film writer as well, um, but also I'm a part-time film master student at the University of Sussex uh, doing film studies there. So kind of similar to Savina, I also kind of have that mix of writing academically one day and then writing kind of journalistically another day. Um, for director's notes, it's kind of a strange website, really. We primarily write uh, interviews with independent filmmakers. So it's kind of, I don't really write a lot of uh, reviews or kind of general film writing. Most of my time is spent um, either emailing or Skyping filmmakers and just chatting to them about their work. So yeah, that's it. Great. Yeah. And we've um, obviously talked to uh, Mar Bell, who uh, edits uh, Director's Notes. And and you're uh, um, a student of Neil and myself down at, at Falmouth. So we've kind of, you know, I don't know, turned you over to the dark side. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think I actually feature on some of the earliest cinematologist episodes, like asking questions wow. in the audience in Falmouth. So it's kind of strange to be. I mean, that was, you started the podcast in 2015, 2016. Yeah, that's right. So yeah, it's been a few years, but it's, I guess I'm doing something well if I'm still in conversation with you. And <laughs> yeah. You know. <laughs> yeah, just remember the heady days down at the um, at the, the cinema auditorium down there at Falmouth University when we were just sort of getting this going. So it's. Uh, yeah, great that you're still still on board as a, a listener and now a contributor. So have either of you had any sort of overall thoughts about the festival, the London Film Festival this year in terms of its quality, some of the things that have come out of it? I don't know if there's been any sort of online specific Twitter controversies or discussions going on that you wanted to talk about. Savina, do you want to go first on that? Mm, let me think nothing particularly striking because i feel like toronto and venice already took the slate with joker so it should be uh quite easy to approach the stuff at lff but it's been a particularly long one with a strong competition in my opinion although they didn't schedule many official competition films in the early press screenings so it was all crammed in in the last week so i wasn't really happy about that because i i love to see the competition films yeah and i think it's quite important to see what's happening with yeah the films that are being represented mostly but there were a lot of gems that i i uh, wanted to catch up from other film festivals and um yeah lots of women involved so i was quite happy yeah and you, do you find yourself that you're the kind of person who wants to see the competition of films and and that gives you a sense of what the the quality or the um the sort of the main thrust or thematic of the festival is or are you a kind of person that's like no i want to see stuff that i would just not ordinarily see or a bit of both maybe yeah i think it varies from festival to festival uh, because i'm still working my way around it it's been my first year of festival film going more than three i've been to four festivals this year sure so i'm still working my way around and approaching each festival on its own and since london has a lot of um this compilation nature that it uh, brings on good films from rotterdam berlin Cannes, venice and everything uh, around it locarno as well mm. uh, it feels like a good place to actually catch up on stuff that you already know has been acclaimed one way or another but at the same time the official competition here seems always to me a bit more surprising okay yeah, 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 yeah so there are a lot of things that for example i wouldn't have seen like the other lamb which is <clears throat> malgozota shumovska's new feature film um first one she does in english and she's been very successful in polish so far and yeah it's great that they brought this in the official competition it sounds really great 
even though it lost to Monos. Yeah, that, I mean, it's, I had a ticket for Monos, but I, was, I had an absolute stinking migraine that evening. I couldn't go, so I wish I'd have seen it now, but I don't know if either of you have seen that. But James, do you, did you have any thoughts on the festival overall? Yeah, well, I'm, I'm still a kind of newbie. This is only my second LFF in person. Um, and I travel up from Brighton, so it kind of, that, you know, makes it all the more difficult, really. Spe- uh, specifically, obviously, when you've got most of the press screening starting at 8 or 8.30 in the morning, it kind of makes it near impossible to get here without spending a fortune. Um, so it's it's interesting trying to navigate it. And I kind of had a bit of a interesting experience with the ticket ballot system this year, where I kind of didn't really get anything <laughs> that I kind of put put my name down for. But I kind of, I feel like you feel a bit privileged kind of saying all this really, because, you know, they're free tickets, essentially, you know, I'm still not having to pay, even though you pay for accreditation at uh, London Film Festival, which you don't do at some other film festivals I've attended before. Yeah, I mean, it's it, it's interesting as well for me, because it, it falls just in the beginning of term. So I would apply for a cinematologist's pass, but I'd need to take like like a week off work to, to get to enough films. So I managed to see three or four, but... Still, it's it, it falls at a funny time, but it's great that you know because I live in London now, I can just go go to stuff, and you know I've got the privilege I can you know buy a ticket. Um, so we're going to talk about a few films, and some of the films that we've crossed over. There's one film that we've we've all seen, which is The Lighthouse, um, which is directed by Robert Eggers and and starring um, Willem Dafoe and Robert Pattinson. And this was one I, I really wanted to see. You know, principally because people, a lot of people are comparing it to um, Mark Jenkins' Bait, which obviously James and I, we know Mark very well, big supporter of the podcast. We love Bait. But I thought, interestingly, although it's a black and white story about, you know, people on the coast suffering hardships, I think that there, there is perhaps things telling it apart, making it diff- making the films different from each other than, than, than connect it. I mean, I don't know you know, what you thought about that idea of a sort of double bill with Bay and, and necessarily, James, what you thought of the film on its own? Yeah, I mean, well, I love both films. Um, and it's interesting that people talk a lot with The Lighthouse about the kind of tactility of it, like how you can like, you know, you feel the sea air, you kind of, you know, all the kind of disgusting things that these men get up to, you kind of can really feel. But it feels weird saying that in a year where Bait has come out and you know Mark's process in which he makes that film and processes the film and you can see the like the scratches on it and you could that feels to me even even more visceral despite it being a kind of less um you know narratively speaking a less kind of visceral film in a way it's just you know it's a kind of a drama about the Cornish coast and you know um what goes on down there so it's um yeah, in terms of a double bill, I th- again, you know, if they're both black and white, both nautical, both shot on film. Um, but it's a very think... different type of black and white kind of texture, isn't mm. it? I mean, Lighthouse is absolutely clean in that black and whiteness, do you know what I mean? Whereas, obviously, Bait has it, it, been done in this very home-processed way, and you can see all of the, the kind of, I don't, I don't want to say imperfections, because they're deliberate, you know what I mean? Or they're part of the, the viewing experience. Absolutely. Yeah, I think the I think the form of both films is what I enjoyed a lot of. I think you can take away and I think there's a lot to think about with the kind of how the form in, is infused with the narrative in both films. Um, and yeah, it's weird. Both films have kind of been talked about as kind of seen as particularly bait, you know, as a relic from another time. It feels like you're watching a film from years past. Um, I think, you know, shooting on film, black and white, lends itself to that, I guess. Yeah. And it- Interestingly, I think I know you you've seen it, at, but not at the London Film Festival. You saw it previously. I don't know if you've seen Bait. Yes, yeah, yeah, I did. So uh, to to me as well, they're very different in terms of 
what they're trying to do almost through the narrative and through the form. So I would, I, you know, I think that, that Bait is much more of a sort of a kind of formalist, you know, it, it's interesting in editing and the way that it's put together, how the story is told is more around ed- the edit, whereas I think that The Lighthouse is more of a, a fable and it's interested in mythology yeah. a lot more. Yeah, I, I com- completely agree. And also it needs this thrust to come from outside, mm. whereas Bait focuses on, on its own workings, in a sense, yeah. and its own societal tensions. Yeah. Which, yeah, I feel like... In the lighthouse, whatever happens, happens because these people are there, are there at sea. And, you know, the environment is affecting yeah. them in many ways. Yeah, and, and interestingly, I think as well, it's obviously much more structured around the, the star performances. Oh, you yeah. know what I mean? And I think that it, what's really great, I mean, Willem Dafoe was at the, you know, he was in the Q&A and, you know, he famously sort of ret- reticent about oh, the way he talks about process. You know, it's kind of, I just turned up and I did it and you've got good people yeah. around you. And you know what I mean? It's really easy. To, but I think that, you know, I, I don't want to sort of get into a competition of it, but I thought Willem, Willem Dafoe was particularly convincing, whereas I thought, you know, Robert Pattinson never really got out of his star aura whereas you know it was much more of a character performance by Willem Dafoe I don't know if you felt that yeah I felt like um Robert Pattinson his um his kind of voice was a bit more all over the place reminding me a bit of something like Tom Hardy and Mad Max you know where you kind of the accent is pretty malleable and amorphous um but yeah Willem Dafoe I think in terms of getting a, a, a mainstream actor to play that kind of role I don't think you could get better than Willem Dafoe you know his like the way his voice works you know is just so kind of aged and also kind of like uh, he can he can play creepy quite well, I think Willem Dafoe. Um, so, yeah, I think in terms of the performances, I would agree with you. I think yeah, uh, Dafoe is definitely the standout. Um, but I, I but I like Patterson's performance. I thought it was pretty decent. Yeah, I mean, I think they play off each other very well, and and you know, it's interesting to hear him talking about how they didn't really, you know, have a have a sort of bond outside of the film until after the film was was actually finished. And I think you get that kind of tension throughout and it's really really interesting but funny how these two films have come up you know pretty much at the same time and I wonder if it's you know there is this sort of move now to much more idiosyncratic styles of filmmaking as maybe a backlash to more formulaic stuff we're just getting over and over again I don't know if you think about that it's possible to say um I I would agree but it's all it's always if if we make this kind of conclusion we have to think about what kind of reaction this is against mm. so what is what is it reacting against yeah. what is it telling us about something that people think that needs yeah. to change is it a statement is it a revolutionary statement maybe it's just a sense that the the sort of aesthetics of construction that are associated with contemporary cinema today you know if, especially when you're sort of talking about you know CGI and yeah. the and the notion of of what a, a cinematic visual experience is. You know we're getting all of that, and then th- this sort of returns back to something slightly more essential, maybe. But again, you know, I think that's an argument that that will probably rumble on. <laughs> you probably, know? I mean, I feel like the biggest differences between the film is between the two films is that how are they made, where are they made, and who are they produced by. Yeah, 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 that's huge. I mean, especially uh, Lighthouse has the backup of A24, which Mm. I really would like to mention that the screening I was in at Cannes, when the A24 logo appeared on screen, people literally started clapping, giving ovations for maybe two or three minutes, (laughs) which was quite interesting for me. But it's a brand that's selling and that um, poses some expectations, and apparently 
you know, meets them. Yeah. So I feel like they, they coat their films in a very proper aesthetic that, for example, Last Man, Last Black Man in San Francisco was also showing at the festival. And I could, um, I could hear with uh, conversations that I have with my peers that people thought, yeah, this is a brand A24, definitely. Even though the films are formally quite different. Yeah. There's something in them as a statement, like a formalistic yeah. statement that lives its own life, I think. Yeah, no, I, and, and I think it's definitely branded around the notion of this, these are kind of artist produced yeah. rather than company produced, yeah. let's say. Interestingly, some way outside of the system as we know it, but yet they are. Still, it is a branding yeah. exercise, of course, <laughs> for sure. So um, do you guys want to talk a little bit about The Lodge? Because you you two have both seen that and I haven't, yeah. I haven't seen that. Um, Savina, do you want to give us a sort of uh, overview of that and your thoughts on it? So The Lodge is directed by um, Veronica Franz and Severin Piala. Um, they've done a previous film, which is translated in English as Goodnight Mummy, which right. I recently saw actually after seeing The Lodge. And I found quite many similarities in the way the story is told. It's a horror movie. Very well paced, very minimalistic, and its camera work um, was lovely. Whereas The Lodge, was, um, it had Riley Keen as the protagonist, so right. that was quite quite a step up I yeah, think yeah. because they're both Austrian filmmakers and they worked um, they were produced by Ulrich Seidel so that was a really great name that struck me I was like he's a master of building tension right. and repulsion so yeah this is how I went into this film and it was also shot by the cinematographer that usually works with Yorgos Lanthimos. So, <laughs> so you're expecting me, this kind of off-kilter, sort of weird style. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I was really happy when I got it, especially um, in the cinematography. It was, I think, brilliant in, in the pacing that it formed. Um, I really loved how, how it worked itself around family and extended family and religious themes. No, I, I, I was just kind of quietly nodding along with all of that because I kind of I really agree um yeah I was when I was watching it and in terms of when you talked about 84 a minute ago I mean this this film at the start it says Hammer film which is obviously kind of a, a throwback almost production company at this point um and they kind of got us in my screening anyway there was kind of like an ooh among the crowd when that happened it was like oh you know we're getting we're getting a, a kind of classic or something I don't know um but yeah watching it I couldn't help but think of uh, Hereditary which is quite different um but it kind of did like the opposite of what hereditary did for me which is you know in hereditary um it's kind of these all these great scares are kind of happening throughout the narrative and then near the end it just kind of explains everything explains why everything is going on which for me kind of undermined that film whereas in this you kind of get all that exposition at the start and then it undermines the exposition in a way towards the end of it and that for me was like i can't that kind of put me on edge and kind of kept me tense throughout the film because I was like oh I thought we kind of had a grip on this but actually I'm not sure what is causing what now you know I'm kind of trying to draw my own threads between oh is this because of her past there's a actually you know the Riley Keogh plays a character who was raised in a cult of some sort um which isn't a spoiler or anything but it that that kind of thing you kind of think oh maybe it's all it's all because of that and it's all just in her head but then there's this kind of fixation on this painting on the wall Savina I don't know what you thought of that painting but they kind of really fixate on it and I not don't really say much else yeah but it was the virgin mary i think so it was on the big theme of atone your sins you need to be pure purified probably i think so yeah so do you think that the, is this film fitting in this mold and i'm not a big horror person so i need to be sort of 
you know, educated about where this new sort of breed of horror movie that everybody kind of critically claims and says that has a sort of uh, intellectual or a societal scope. You know what I mean? It's trying to say something beyond just we're scared here, you know, a bit like Get Out and that, that kind of thing. Does this fit into that mold or is this just a straight genre movie? I have a problem with that mold in particular, to right. be fair, because I don't feel like horror films needed much rediscovering or rebirth in no, a no. sense. <clears throat> because the, the issues are there, even in the popular ones. I think you can unearth a lot of things right there. But maybe, yeah, there are some that are done more consciously. Mm. So in mind with the public and in mind with, oh, we are just playing off the genre, but we are telling another story. So I feel like, yeah, I will take a more moderate position on this, but fo fo probably agree. Mm. And I would put it directly with Hereditary as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's interesting because I kind of count myself as a horror fan and... The conversation you have with people that love horror films and that don't is, you know, it's that kind. Of, it's finding that line. I mean, Get Out is a great example of a film that has a wider social context and and has, has really affected the horror landscape for people that don't like horror films. But everyone kind of talks about that. Um, but I think it really comes down to when when you're a horror fan, you kind of like the tropes and you like seeing how they're dealt with in different ways. Um, and this is very much like kind of your classic like all set in one house, boiler room, tensions build up over the course of the film kind of film. But but that's kind of done in specifically different ways and it's quite ambiguous, which is something you don't really get in horror films these days. They like to explain a lot. So yeah, I think it's, it's interesting. Um, I'm listening to a podcast at the moment called Evolution of Horror, which is really kind of reframing everything how I think about the genre and just genre in general. Um, but they kind of touch upon how the kind of horror audience and how they can be quite um, exclusive, but also um, quite protective of, of, of those kind of genre tropes. And I think it's interesting that, you know, you've got these tropes and how they trudge themselves up time and time again. And also just, you know, how they can be reused and how they can be reinterpreted in kind of a different context, I guess, in a modern way. Yeah, I mean, I think fans of any particular ilk can be pretty protective, can't they, about what they what they think oh, they're... Because yeah. uh, they've all got some sort of sense of ownership over, this is this is my thing, and, you know, how, how yeah. dare anybody sort of play around with it in that sense. So, yeah, interesting. So, uh, one for horror fans there, The Lodge coming up. So, Savina, do you want to talk about your favourite film of the <laughs> festival? Because I know we, we had a chat about it the other day, and it's a film that I wanted to get a ticket for and never managed to, so I really want to... The thing about festivals is sometimes you hear you get a film that's that wins the final award like Monos we talked about has won the the best film in competition but I think this is the film that has had the most conversation around from what I've seen. Yeah, people have been looking forward to it for a long time, um, and it was the only film in the press screening that had three simultaneous ones. Right. So this is Portrait of a Lady on Fire. Yes, that's the film. Straight off, saying this is probably my favorite film of the year. Um, I saw it in May, saw it in Cannes, um, while the conversation was already really hot around it, people were already saying that it was amazing, the best film, beautiful, up for a pound door, yeah. which left me a bit skeptical when I was walking in the, the screening room, but then I said, okay, let's let's see what all the fuss is about. Mm. It was my first Celine Siama film as well. Right, well, right, okay. Yeah, and by half an hour in, I was completely sold, gripped, didn't want to leave the film world at all. And that rarely happens to me because even I, I do voluntarily surrender to films, but this had something very special and emotion is such a, 
such a stupid word to describe this film. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I keep saying that the film feels like falling in love. Right. And I find that really extraordinary because the pace of the film is something unparalleled to what I've seen so far in, in other when you, films. When you say the, the, the pace of the film, you mean it, 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 does it have something specific about that? You know, because you could say, oh, something is quite fast-paced or it's slow-paced. Yeah. But what, so what, what do you mean by that? Well, it's kind of like falling in love. At first, it happens really slowly, then all at once. Oh, okay. Then I it got you. Yeah. All at once. yeah. Um, I feel like this is a nice way to say it. And also, it was a really nice way of Celine Siama explaining it herself in her screen talk, which was a few days ago at the LFF, that she wanted to make a film about desire and she had to maybe a bit analytically pinpoint the different moments of falling in love and deciding that you care for that person and accepting that you are feeling these feelings and you're going to surrender to them. Sure. Uh, so that was probably mapped up, ma- mapped out firstly in the, um, in the narrative and then acted out perfectly, mm. I think. Um, it is a love story. It's a lesbian love story that takes place in... Brittany and the coast in a castle, so it's a very um, sure. small, small crew film. Right. Um, beautiful performances by Noemi Melon and Adele Anel, um, who's already worked with Celine Siama once. But these two make a spectacular team. Right. Um, and how would you compare it to say something like Blue is the Warmest Color? In terms of the, you know, because that had that film came out had a lot of plaudits and then suddenly had a lot of yeah. criticism and backlash, mainly because of the production issues yeah. that were around it, and like then that gets into sort of how you present sexuality in certain certain ways. So yeah. I mean, I don't know how was was this doing this in a, in a very specific way? Would you say or well, the main accusation was director is a man. Mm. So here we have a director who is a woman and who's been dedicated to. Uh, positioning um, womanhood and sexuality on screen through a female gaze, mm. which I also feel like saying that uh, Portrait of Lady on Fire is, um, I think, a next uh, textbook film mm. uh, that we could use to study the female gaze in, okay. fi- in filmmaking. I think it's going to be really useful because it plays off the idea of the artist and the, pa- uh, the artist and the model. Mm. the painter and the the one that poses for them so you have a very proper idea of a gaze yeah. of someone that needs to be drawn and someone that's posing in front of you so the the camera almost always aligns with one gaze or the other right but in a way throughout the film it switches so at one point you have the model becoming the painter so yeah this equilibrium between the gazes is played off so well that on upon a second viewing I realized that it's so much looking looking right. into someone's eyes and looking away that it's a beautiful yeah, film yeah. about looking but it also it sounds like and again I'm looking forward to see it, that actually it's it's problematizing the very idea that there is one like two binary notions yeah. of gazing and that kind that kind of thing which is obviously a bigger topic yes but, so know. let's say it size with the fact that it is a loving gaze yeah, yeah, yeah. which could be an ethical category uh, the gaze for the other and it's a caring one and mm. yeah a loving one Great. so it's beautiful yeah i'm really looking forward to seeing that so I, I, have you seen any selinsky armor i watched tomboy on movie the the, the other day yeah. and uh, really sort of beautifully shot you know portrait that that has a lot of seems to have a lot of respect for the subject matter james 
Yeah, I mean, it's I saw Tomboy a couple of years ago now, but I think on the movie as well. Um, I was, yeah, really struck by it. I thought it was a kind of quite a unique film in a way. I can't really place my finger on what the kind of sensibility of it is, but I think she's a really special filmmaker for sure. So what was the film that you would say was your favourite of everything that you saw that, that struck you most that you wanted to talk about? Uh, so there was a couple of independent features that I wanted to talk about. There was one called uh, Premature, which was directed by uh, an African-American director called Richard Ernesto Green. Um, and it's all set in Harlem. And it follows this young African-American woman as she forms a romance with a slightly older man. I think she's like 17 or something in the film. And it's like the summer before she goes off to university. And so it kind of immediately sets itself up as this kind of coming of age classical thing. But it plays, I think, with that genre has been obviously overdone from a lot of white perspectives. And this feels to me like um, putting black lives in those perspectives. And kind of so you have a lot of conversations, intellectual conversations surrounding the point, you know, what's the meaning of black art? What's, you know, black masculinity versus black femininity? Um, But it all folds in this kind of trials and tribulations romance with this young woman and this older man. And they kind of listen to music together. They kind of, you know, go out on walks and stuff. It's kind of very much not a side you usually see of these kind of people in the general public, I guess you'd say. And I just thought it was a really well-told story. There's a really uh, intense section in the middle where you watch this young woman uh, have an abortion, but it kind of follows like her it's like the camera literally just follows her around her home as she's going through this really kind of traumatic experience. And that's something you, I mean, I've never seen that on, you know, on the screen. So it was very distressing. Um, it's almost like the, the the director doesn't want you to look away and is forcing you to confront this. Absolutely. And, and, and the kind of cinematography lended itself to that. It was, you know, you see a lot of debut features where it's kind of very handheld driven cinematography. Um, and this very much was that, but it felt like he was just kind of, I just want the actors to do their thing and we'll get that. It doesn't matter about me. It doesn't matter about me framing this in a very artistically creative way. It's all about kind of the actors and getting them to be themselves. I imagine, I've not seen Barry Jenkins' Medicine for Melancholy, but I imagine it's quite similar to that. Because that kind of, I guess, took the whole mumblecore movement and kind of, you know, placed those kind of people in there. So, um, yeah, I just it, I just found it a really striking debut Um something that I hadn't seen before. Yeah, it's interesting when you when you see a film that, that is a debut feature and actually seems really assured. It's kind of like, you know, because you often sort of watch a film and you think, oh, this is a, this is a debut feature and you cut it some slack and you can yeah. see where the where there's problems. But then when you see one that's just kind of like brilliant from the start, you think, wow, that really is somebody who knows what they're doing. Absolutely, absolutely. I think you could say the same for Robert Eggers with The Witch. I think that was a great film. Um, and like... Just to, just to talk about the lighthouse more because I think I just love that film so much. Um, it was it's great to see kind of I think you can see some clear kind of progression between those two films as well. I think um, the the way the form kind of plays in the lighthouse is I think way more interesting, maybe controversially than the witch, um, which I I really liked, but I don't think I loved as much as everyone else. But yeah, totally agree. The other film you wanted to just mention the uh, the second uh, it was a it's an Irish feature called Nocturnal, directed by Natalie Biancari. And it's very in the vein of um, Andrea Arnold, that kind of British feature, following working class lives. This one centres on a young girl who forms a relationship with an older man who we learn early on is her father, but he's not allowed to tell her that because he's estranged. Um, And she forms a romance with him, not like 
was and she forms affection towards him and then they kind of create this relationship and he is he can't tell her that he's her dad but he doesn't want to leave her alone because he's now forming this connection with his daughter it's a very tricky film um that tries to balance a lot but i think just about manages it um i've seen a few critics talk about the leading performance of the man who's played by cosmo jarvis as being kind of like brando and on the waterfront that kind of um skulking working class nature and it's and it, i think he is really extraordinary in it and there's it really he there's a brilliant scene where he reveals that he is the father to her and but the way he articulates himself in a, in a totally inarticulate way it's it's you know the way it represents repressed masculinity and he just can't really get the words out but then he just blurts them out and then he's just kind of like he doesn't really know how to deal with these emotions it's really kind of strange and moving um but yeah i just thought that was another really really great debut as well yeah no that's it it sounds really interesting and it's it, it's like great sort of seeing things i always feel like it's, like it's slightly out of time when you see stuff at film festivals and you realize next year this is all these are all kind of like next year's films in yeah. many ways aren't it always sort of skew skew whiffs the end of your know, the end of year what you've what you've seen for the year and what you think is good for that year and it, it actually this is stuff that's still to come. It's really confusing. I always struggle with the fact that how do I formulate even if I do a list mm. because I have all these films in mind, but at the same time, for example, if I want to write on them or think about them way more, I need to wait to official release, which sometimes takes ages. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Years, year and a half at least for some European films that I've been following lately. So, yeah, I wish people picked up them faster and released them faster, please, guys. Yeah, but the, but, but the other issue as well, I, I think, is, you know, the sort of first look review culture where everybody's looking to get out the first, um, the, be the first person to say, oh, this thing is a masterpiece or this thing is uh, absolutely terrible and nobody should go, go see it. And it, it seems now we're in this sort of, specific kind of cycle where something comes out it gets this massive buzz and hype and then there's the backlash and then it kind of settles into a position and you know what I mean I almost feel like there's we have to try and find a way of getting out of that and that, that's why I like we're not going to talk about Joker but I'm going to talk about that with Neil on a, on another episode up and coming and I feel like I want I kind of want to talk about it a little bit but I want to talk about it two weeks later you know what I mean because <laughs> it's that has been going on alongside you know the film festival that that kind of discussion so J- james I, I just wondered how you felt about that how as a writer you sort of place yourself in the whole time span of when a film comes out it's our festival and where it's where it's kind of headed to yeah i mean it's i mean that's kind of the constant battle isn't it um fortunately i you know the site i work for we don't do kind of quick fire reviews or you know stuff that needs to be released kind of or commented on the day it comes out um, there's Marvin who uh, edits director's notes, tends to be um, pretty relaxed with everything. Um, we mainly focus on short films as well. So we are the premiere for a lot of short films. So we are the kind of first take, which is quite nice, but we get time with the filmmakers. We get time to kind of plan things out. Um, in terms of the Joker and stuff, I don't want to, I'm not going to go too far in, don't worry. Uh, <laughs> um, but I think what I found most kind of interesting is a lot of the conversation that people are talking about seems to be based on the kind of Twitter conversation surrounding that film, which is interesting because if any of the audio podcast-based conversations I've heard on that seem to be very level-headed and very um, reassured and interesting and actually kind of saying way more than you can, I guess, in a few tweets and stuff. But so it's interesting that the kind of conversation is centred actually almost on, on this online platform where discussion can't really be had rather than kind of talked about in a sense of where, you know, critics and um 
I guess, film academics as well as kind of other film writers are kind of talking about it kind of face to face with each other. I think that kind of is quite telling, particularly around a film like Joker. Yeah, no, I, th- I think that's true. I mean, I definitely read polemics at both ends and, you know, there are people who are kind of advocating this film, you know, very, very, very strongly. And then I've seen a couple who have just gone to that point where this is, you know, an irresponsible film. I've read both of those. But actually, I think when you have a face-to-face discussion, that's when you can really get to the nuances of what people really think. And it's one of the problems of... We love all... We love film criticism. We love films. We love all this online writing. But everybody's fighting for the the hot take and, like, being super polemic is one way of doing that. Yeah, and I've also heard uh, stories about people leaving halfway through films or even half an hour in to write the review so they can file it in yeah. the first ones and have the take on it. So I feel like a lot of critics want to or maybe are paid to be, I'm not sure how it works for some kind of publications, to be the trendsetters, which actually, yeah, kind of diverts the attention from the film itself to the persona of the critic. So yeah, yeah I find that a lot in Definitely. in the Twitter conversations especially the ones that we've had from Tarantino film to Joker. Mm. I feel like it's been one big conversation that's been spanning for months and months. And everyone everyone has Tarantino piece. Everyone has a Joker take. Everyone is really ready to promote it and defend it, which in theory is good. But I I like to say that I wish we did that to many more films, Mm. not just these. Yeah, I mean, again, it was like I got into a, a sort of conversation and I was just saying that I... I think that You Were Never Really Here is a far superior film to Joker. Not that I think Joker is terrible, but it's interesting to me how that film, which, you know, again, it's an opinion. I think it's a better film, but it's never going to get the recognition that Joker is get and Joker gets. And to be honest with you, the, 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 probably the main reason for that is just because it's attached to a, you know, superhero franchi- yeah, franchise. And it's like, to me, that's the saddest part that... that it, it's that connection that gives this movie its its wider cultural impact. You know what I mean? And then a film that doesn't have that, just that obvious connection, will isn't going to get recognised in the in the same way. When ostensibly, you know, it's the same. It's a very similar type of movie in being a Scorsese inspired psychological thriller with Joaquin Phoenix in the lead in the lead role. Um, anyway, we'll save. We don't want to go off onto a Joker tangent. Um, I've, de- I've uh, definitely decided that. So, Savina, do you want to talk about um, Beanpole? Because I know that Neil, it, that's actually out on Mubi now, and you can yes, you can see that. So I'm I'm, I'm going to try and watch that this week. And I know that Neil's seen it, and he wanted to talk about it. So, what was your take on, on um, Beanpole? I really liked the film. Um, I saw it before before I saw the first feature of Kantemir Balagov, who is famously young, um, and yeah, up and coming. Um, it already snagged a few awards in Cannes. So I I went a bit blind in the film as regarding what it's, what it's about. And so what, what's the main sort of thrust? What's the story? Uh, the story takes place in post-Second World War uh, Leningrad, following the stories of two women who have fought together uh, in the Air Force. And now, since the war is over, they both suffer in different ways from post-traumatic stress. The main character, um, her name is Vinpo Dilda in Russian. Um, she has this condition that she freezes sometimes. Mm. Um, yeah, it doesn't move. Okay. And it's like neurologically induced and yeah, amplified by stress. 
Whereas her friend, Masha, um, she is very, she's a very sensual woman. She likes to express herself in, in delights and earthly delights. And she's very openly sexual and she really wants to have children. And yeah, basically the story follows their journey into this society that has been basically crammed by the war and it's very the the society itself is quite infertile and the main threads of the film that explore are just motherhood in mm. many many variant ways and the female friendship and female relationship which cannot be even put in a box and the film benefits mainly from the from the characters and the way they interact with each other but it also has a lot of uh, perfectionism in its set design and its right, color okay. scheme so you're gonna, when you see it on the movie you're going to be struck by the fact that it's such a consistent and beautiful color palette mm. so it's a lot of ochre a lot of beige a lot of greens and reds and you can see how the characters are dressed one is dressed in green one in red and they tessellate and then by the end they kind of switch the clothes and sure. it's quite an interesting um, color palette because it's more more dead than alive mm. so my interpretation of the film has a lot to do with death and, and life and what it means to be alive in this era sure. um, which is quite yeah quite controversial and I had an interview with the director himself and he enlightened me a lot um, about his work on the film and he said that um, the colors were also um, also a symbol of life draining from, from the people, but at the same time, in this post-war era when everything seemed a bit grey, people, uh, and he read that in diaries during his research and in uh, scholarly books, that people were trying to fill their life with colour. Mm. So I feel like, in a, in a way, the film is also doing that in a very meticulously made set design, and it's it's quite strikingly beautiful. Wow. No, sounds like that sounds really really interesting, and yeah, that that can be seen now on movie. I mean, you you both there are, are sort of have talked about how you are interviewing directors quite regularly um, about their films, and I just wondered what you know if you had any thoughts on 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 doing that and how that relates to the film itself. Because just moving off into kind of an academic direction for a second, you know, that idea of the the film standing for its, itself and being outside of the intentionality of the director is a whole sort of school of thought, of interpretation around film. And then you've got a much more kind of auteuristic viewpoint around, you know, what is the director as an artist trying to do here? And, and how do you bring those two elements together where on the one hand you want to kind of be objective and have your interpretation and your reading of a film, but yet then also think about and react to what a director is saying was their intention. Yeah, I mean, that's the kind of battle I constantly have with my editor. I mean, whenever we talk about, you know, the process of interviewing filmmakers, Marvin always says, you can never say the filmmaker intended to do this because you can never know unless you've asked them and they've told you. So it's always kind of something you kind of have to remain, I guess, objective from. Um, are you kind of referring to my kind of process? Is it like someone who interviews directors? Is that what you're asking about? Yeah, I mean, the, the, the thing is, it's, it must be kind of like a temptation to sort of automatically interconnect the film with the director if you're speaking to the director. To sort of say, oh, the film is doing this because the director said to me this is what they're doing. But maybe, you know, your own interpretation or reading of a film has to come into that somewhere where, you know, you could make a reading of a film that has absolute, and the director could turn around and say, well, I didn't mean that at all. 
And, and then where are you? Quite a lot. <laughs> so, but but that doesn't to me that doesn't invalidate because as soon as a film is out in the world, it doesn't belong to the director anymore. In many, you know, it's the whole sort of death of the author thing. If you want to go back to Bart and Foucault and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, I mean, I think I I would I would actually agree that I think that's yeah I think you've um, put it much more cleverly than I could. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think that's a. I think I don't want to. I don't want to bring up Joker again. But I think the way Todd Phillips has been talking about that film is an. I think you could argue is a great example of a film where the director thinks he's got one thing when actually he's got another. I won't talk about it any more than that. Um, so I think there's clear clear examples. I, you know, I see it. I see a lot of um, young uh, new filmmakers. You know, making their first short and then you know who will go on to maybe make a feature one day. And so you can you can clearly see that where they wear their influences on their sleeves and they don't realize that they're doing a lot of what other filmmakers their age are doing. I think Andrea Arnold is a really interesting example because I don't think people talk enough about how influential her films have been. Like most of the films I see that are British dramas all look like fish tank. Like they all follow the kind of same thing, um, but they never do it as well or they kind of um, fall into that, you know, poverty porn kind of genre that, you know, is, you know it's quite tricky. Yeah, and I think she, she, you could say that she's, she herself has been influenced by Ken Loach and that sort of whole history of uh, social realism and what have you. Absolutely. Um, so, it's, yeah, it's tricky to remain, have a lack of self-awareness, I guess, about your own work. Um, but also, yeah, I, think, I do think that once it's kind of out there, it is, as a piece of art, it needs to be open to interpretation. It needs to be open to criticism. Otherwise, you, you've only made it for yourself, you know? You got any thoughts on I, that? I really prefer to talk to filmmakers about their approach, their process, their not intent, not at all, but their background, their feelings about things, what what they think cinema does, more abstract things to, to get me into their head in a sense. Because, yeah, I was very tempted by doing my first interviews to kind of like um, go by my own interpretations by the director or validate them in a sense, which uh, crashed completely, especially <laughs> after I I was I was asking Yorgos Lanthimos, who is my idol and filmmaker, asking him some stuff that I have already written my master's dissertation on. He was like, no, actually, no, not at all. <laughs> so, <laughs> so that was a big clash. I said, okay, there's something yeah. inherently wrong in my approach. But I always find it really informative. Um, and sometimes maybe it does um, influence me in the way I see a film. But, you know, it's proper etiquette to already have seen films of this director go to him with a proper thing in your mindset. But if, if it influences it and sometimes it changes, it's completely fine. I was just going to ask Savina if she'd seen Nimic, the, the short, Yorgos's short. What did you think of that? Absolutely. I saw it twice, one after the other. Um, and I have so many different interpretations that I really haven't wrapped my head around it. I feel like I would love to write at least one text on it, but I still don't know what and how, and it has this dissonance in my mind, but it's always like like he he can do it, very uh, schizophrenic and also very syncretic at the same time, um, narrative-wise, formally, and in content. What what did you think of it? So, J- James, just say what that film's about, rough, um, broadly. Oh, that's, a, that's a difficult oh, one. Oh, God. Yeah, just, well, just, yeah, <laughs> as, as, as succinctly as you can. Oh, God. Well, it's one of the first films I, I've seen. I, I watched it on the uh, part of the online viewing library that the festival set out, so I'm going to have to cast my mind back a bit. But 
it's um it follows Matt Dillon. He plays a, a I think a, a cellist in an orchestra, um, and he's uh, on the tube one day after kind of a, a, a I guess a practice session or a kind of a, you know rehearsal for something, and then he asks someone for the time. I I this is me trying to really remember now, and then they just essentially just repeat back at him. And then they end up just copying him and following him back to his place and then kind of mimicking him. And then this kind of strange bit where their kind of lives start to overlap and then he gets kind of cast out. It's a very um, surreal, I think, and kind of dreamlike film. Sounds quite conceptual that it's it's setting out a sort of experiment. Very conceptual. It's, it reminded me of um, Christopher Nolan's Doodlebug in the sense of the way it's in the way it's plotted at least I don't think uh, it's I think it's a much more interesting film than that um but similar to Savino I think I'm I'm still you know my head trying to like wrap my head around kind of what he was trying to go for um but it's certainly a very gripping film and very strange um and it's great to see a filmmaker like that work in short form content because I think a lot of the perception around short film is that um oh it's just a stepping stone to feature filmmaking when actually I think that this is a really great example of a, a great filmmaker making a, a great short, despite the fact that he's, you know, I don't know how many features deep now. Five. Right. <laughs> no, I'll have to check. I, I don't know the director, so I'll have to... No, it's your go, Lanthimos. Oh, sorry, go ahead. I didn't know. <laughs> <laughs> so it's That's... a Lanthimos film doing a, doing a short... Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Like a, a short form it's film. It's a 15, ah. 15 minute film. Right, okay. Um, Sorry, they completely passed me by that. You could see that it's born of an idea, of a strange idea that actually gave birth to his earlier films. Basically, everything before The Favourite, I think, has been born out of a weird concept. Oh, let's play out, play this out in the real world. Like right. a twisted philosophical or ethical experiment. Sure. And you could see the core in that film as well. But it's since it's in short form, it leaves so much in their interpretation which is lovely mm. because it's so engaging and yeah it's, it's really great brilliant um so I'm, I'm glad we got to talk about a lanthimos film now seeing as you're here so that's brilliant yes. but maybe you could finish off for us uh savina by talking about marriage story because i know this is a again m- maybe not as big as the irishman as a you know <laughs> as the finishing film that everybody's been talking about but it's a kind of big star-driven piece Yes. In a way, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, and it's very anticipated as a Noah Baumbach film. Yeah. So everyone was going crazy about another film about uh, artist-based love couple in New York, or mm. in this case, New York and LA, um, which is starcast-driven, as you said. Everyone is crazy about Adam Driver, which is great. I really like him as an actor. Scarlett Johansson doesn't seem any less than him to be fair so i'd like to bring her in the conversation because people have been tweeting about adam driver all the time i'm sorry but it's a two-way performance it's a um it's a really really moving film um i don't think i've cried so much in the cinema as much as i did here out of this amazing orchestration of 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 camera work and characters and how they tessellate uh, two of them. So, do you want me to say something about Well, I mean, is, is it, it, it in, in, obviously it's called Marriage Story, and it, is it this sort of lens of a breakdown of, of that, or the, or the development of a marriage over time, that, that kind of thing? So, people have compared it a bit with Bergman's uh, Scenes of a Marriage, because right. it is about the breakdown <clears throat> of it, uh, but it's obviously much shorter, um, and it's about a divorce. 
So we, we need to think of a divorce not that much as a breakup than as a bureaucratic thing that sets people right. apart. Gotcha. So I love the fact that this film was playing so hard on these notes that it's a particularly long, difficult, alienating process that actually gets in the way of the actual breakup. Right. Um, and it was quite painful to watch sure. uh, precisely because of this bureaucratic nature of it. And that affects the characters quite, quite deeply. And this is where all, all the feelings spur from, because you, you see signs of care um, even in the most absurd situations. You see people hurting each other, and yet they still care for each other. Mm. Um, the film is shot by Robbie Ryan, who is um, as known as um, Andrew Arnold's collaborator, and uh, recently he did The Favourite with Yorgos Lanthimos. And there's this one particularly strong sequence that I probably will remember for a long, long time, um, it's a scene of a fight between um, Adam Driver's character and um, Scarlett Johansson's, which probably spans about maybe five, ten minutes, a particularly long one. Right. And you can see the tempo of their argument rising, and it's paralleled in such a beautiful way in the cinematography. It um, generally shrinks from long shot to extreme close-ups of their faces in an almost square box ratio. Right. So at the point where they are... Um, screaming at the top of their lungs the most hurtful things they would say to each other the camera was so close to them that i i felt like they were ripping something off inside right. of me so um, it's very much using the form to kind of intensify was, the the, the uh, feelings of what's going he on he was in a very great way because i feel like robbie ryan already has a knack on it so right. i think this is a great collaboration between them right james are you a Baumbach fan yeah yeah absolutely i mean I've, yeah francis how i love um as well as his earlier stuff as well. Um, so I've been very much anticipating this. Do we, do we know when it's coming out? Is it quite soon? I'm not sure. Um, Netflix release is scheduled for November. Oh, okay. So I'm so guessing theatrical as well. Yeah, I, I think he, he is great with comedy and it has a lot of comic episodes, but I feel like this film is a departure from, from the big comedy um, part of his oeuvre, if we could say that. It's a very... Um, in, intensively, I don't know. It's a proper stupid, drama. Stupid to say it, yeah, but yeah, yeah, it's a it's a it's a drama. It's a grown up film. Yeah. Did Did either of you see the Merowitz stories? Yes. Yeah. yeah. I like that a lot. Me too. It's probably my favorite one. Actually. Yeah. I mean, that I thought it was great, and I think that's. I guess that if if this if the marriage if marriage stories are kind of full shift away from his kind of comedic tendencies, I think that's definitely that makes sense as a kind of bridging film. Um, but yeah, I, I, I think everything he puts out, I think I'm, I'm always interested to see. Um, and yeah, you're totally right about the uh, Adam Driver kind of fandom kind of overtaking. I think also Scarlett Johansson's been getting a bit of a bad rap this year with all the comments surrounding, you know, uh, who actors should betray and representation and stuff. So it's... Uh... <laughs> yeah, that's been coming up for a long while, but at the same time, she is great. Let's mm. have it out there. Mm. Yeah, I mean, again, it's, we haven't got time for that on on this podcast, but it's kind of you know separating the artist from from you know their yeah. their particular political statements. Let's say is a is a big issue that people are talking about right right now. Maybe we'll we'll well we'll definitely probably talk about that in the in the future. The thing I saw with Adam Driver in the festival was the report. Did you guys see that by any chance? Yeah, early oh, right. on. Okay, James, have you seen that? No, I didn't, but I'm very keen to know what you guys think of it. It ticks certain boxes about the kinds of films I would like because it is this sort of very procedural, 
almost um, paranoid conspiracy developing story. I mean, it's about the um, the torture report that was you know that, that that was tried to be suppressed by the UN, US government and then you know eventually it came out bit by bit but redacted um and so it touches on things like all the president's men and the parallax view the sort of 70s conspiracy films that I really like but I to be honest as a as a subject I found it fascinating as a film I found it quite plodding you know and a little bit sort of structurally dull in a way I mean what I don't do you know mean? Well, I mean, I just don't... I mean, he was very good and it t- tells the story... It tells the story very well and it's very complicated, but but it's very straightforward in terms of the way it's shot as a, as a piece of cinema. Yeah, and there was, chronologically. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And there's absolutely no um, expansion on anybody's personal emotional feelings. Yeah, they, you know went, what I mean? they went for a full recreation as in word-to-word accuracies and yeah. tracing the smallest details of the stories and who argued about what and when and yeah, what was put out there, what was suppressed. So I guess they, they gave the more personal side away. And yeah, no, I think that's true. That. I mean, and it reminded me a little bit of the way that Steven Spielberg shot Lincoln in the fact that I mean there was more personal stuff in that but he was very respectful of the subject and it felt like the director didn't want to try and impart anything that would take away from the seriousness of this story but at the end of the day that kind of makes a film a lot more I don't know. It it just suppresses the fact that the of the cinematic possibilities that you could have. Yeah, with, with exactly. The film. And it stays more like a document of yeah. something um, in in very informative way that doesn't really allow for too much creativity or too much empathy or ethical pondering even yeah, sometimes. Yeah. Because yeah, when you when you use a, a sentence and you use a full stop in the end, that's that's all. You have the clauses, you have everything there, but it's it's mm. already said and done. It's like the story. This yeah. is the history. This, you yeah, can't yeah, really yeah. argue it. And we know that it's there's very little space for um, personal feelings and ethics in history. Mm. We have other disciplines and other lenses looking into that and reading it. Yeah, it almost felt like he was shooting it as an antidote to sort of subjectivity around news. You know what I mean? It's like because everything is so, you know, fake news and everybody's arguing about there's no fact, there is opinion. Here is a filmmaker trying to lay down this story very factually. And you've got to kind of admire that um, to a certain degree. But again, it's it's sort of the, the it's the kind of film that you're glad that you watched it because you're never going to read that report. Yeah, exactly, you know what I mean? Exactly. So it, 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 it sort of characterizes that that way or it, it it sort of summarizes it in a cinematic way in a way that's oh yeah I'm glad I watched that but you know you know in this in the festival um there's a film that uh, touches on quite similar themes but I think does exactly what you think is lacking in the report yeah. the artistic mastery of it and uh, the space for conversation and taking in the cinematic possibilities and that film is called Mr. Jones oh, okay yeah directed by Agnieszka Holland a Polish film uh, maker veteran that has worked in the US for a long time. But yeah, the, the story follows the actual um, reveal of the truth of the Homodolor, which was the Ukrainian hunger. Oh, okay. Which, yeah, which was suppressed by the Russian, wow. the, US, the Soviet government for a long, long, long time. And there was this Welsh journalist that fights for the truth. So we have the hero that's uh, very much dedicated to sure. bringing out the truth similarly to Adam Driver's character. Right. Um, and there's a lot of atrocities done to these people. 
and here's the drive as well but it's done in a more storytelling friendly way okay. i think it's very affecting uh, in in, the, in in its editing and in the fact what it shows actually because there's a really long sequence of the journalist actually going into the deserted villages where the hunger was reigning for maybe years and years already. Right. And it's quite striking what he sees there. Oh, uh, there's some, some sequence that I really can't unsee anymore. <laughs> right. But right. yeah, it's a, it's a lovely film. It should be coming out okay. anytime. And that's called again? Mr. Jones. Mr. Jones. Okay, I'll check that out. Um, listen, guys, thanks so much for the time that you've taken to to do this. I hope, you've, uh, hope it hasn't been too scary and you've enjoyed it a little bit. It was... Pretty enjoyable. <laughs> yeah, it's been great. Hopefully, we'll we'll have you on. I'm sure we'll have you on in the future. Um, and uh, good luck with your uh, careers in film criticism and in academia, wherever wherever that takes you. Um, yeah, and all, all the very best. Yeah, hopefully, hopefully, see you again soon. Yeah, hopefully, see you soon. Looking forward to it. Would you like to be a part of this history? Yes, I'm available. Yeah, so as you can hear, you know, really passionate film critics, film watchers, film aficionado cinephiles there in in James and, and Savina. And once again, thanks to Kate and Michael giving up their time um, in the build-up to the uh, the London Film Festival, which is obviously the busiest time that they will encounter in the year. Um, just to say as well to our listeners that all of the films that were mentioned are on the show notes. So I've posted a link in some way, shape or form. So, you know, you can see the film's names and directors that we're, we're talking about, because I know sometimes it's difficult to, to catch them up and you don't want to stop the recording. But Neil, yeah, so um, I know you've seen one film that was screening at the film festival because it's been available on, on movie, but you know, there's other stuff that you are interested in, in catching up with when it comes out on general release. I know that. Yeah. It's been, uh, yeah. Interesting to kind of watch, watch you kind of navigate the festival uh, being local and me being sort of in Cornwall and kind of get excited about following a lot of these films from where they've premiered elsewhere in the world, you know, Toronto or Venice or Telluride, New York, and then kind of now in London and, kind of getting closer and closer to being able to see them, which is really great. So um, a couple of the films that, that were at the festival I, I had seen because they were played in Berlin. So Kim Long Gianotto's Shooting the Mafia played there, which we saw, we obviously talked about on our Berlin episode. We both really, really loved that. And uh, also Monos, which was the the big prize winner this weekend. I, I caught that in Berlin. And Oh, that's great, Neil, because um, I had a ticket for that and then I had a screaming headache and I couldn't go. And, and neither James nor Savina had, uh, had seen it. So do you think it's uh, worth, uh, uh, you know, a festival prize, that film? Yeah, it's good that you didn't go with a screaming headache because it's got an amazing score by Mika Levi, which will do do some more damage uh, in a brilliant way it's a fantastic score and one of those great scores that elevates what could what could be a not a traditional because it's kind of it's got a lot going for it but it really does help elevate it into something else and yeah it was a, I saw it late in a packed house and it was a really thrilling kind of late night movie I thought it was yeah I, I love the first half I think it's one of those kind of early filmmaker movies where it does run out of steam a bit towards the end, but there's so much visual inventiveness and kind of really tight storytelling and really great handling of 
uncertainty and kind of tension uh, in the first sort of two thirds, which yeah, kind of make it a really exciting film. Um, just a really good genre movie with strange undertones. Uh, the central premise is is great, and uh, yeah, just I love the way it kind of it didn't explain anything at, at any point. You know, you don't know. So the the basic story is kind of a group of young kids, essentially kind of that look like militia at an outpost on a on a mountainside. And I think it's Colombia and uh, they're holding out and they're visited by a kind of almost like a squadron leader who tells them, you know, to keep up the good work kind of thing and, and charges them with looking after a cow. And uh, obviously, spoiler alert, something happens to the cow, but then it's almost like a Lord of the Flies unwrangling of politics amongst the, the group. And then just tragedy after tragedy ensue um, until the kind of the group splits up. And it's just, yeah really really well handled great performances um yeah a good a good movie. and it's one of those ones that when you i saw it in berlin i was i wondered what the the legs of it were you know is this a film that's gonna travel to other festivals is it going to get play and it's going to get cinema release here which is really exciting because you know it is a foreign language film with no easy explanation as to what is actually going on or what the kind of underlying kind of backstory is so it's exciting that that it's got a push and that people are able to see it and i think yeah it's it's good that it's won a prize that will kind of hopefully get a few more people interested in it so yeah well worth well worth I'm, checking out i'm gutted i missed it to be honest with you but uh, it sounds right up my street <laughs> yeah no i think you really like it it's got that kind of yeah post-apocalyptic sci-fi dystopian kind of vibe to it which is great um yeah and the other thing that i saw thanks to uh, Mubi, is uh, Beanpole, Kantemir Balagov, the Russian filmmakers. I think it's his second film. And uh, yeah, they've they've released it on Mubi literally three days or four days after it premiered, which is really exciting to be able to see it. And I watched it over the weekend and I have to say, I really didn't want to watch it. Uh, I'm not in the mood at the moment for, like work is so busy, life is so stressful. I'm not really in the mood for, you know, over two hour kind of serious films. But I sat down to watch it because I thought, no, it's really exciting to be able to see something this soon after its premiere. And I knew we were talking about it. So I kind of put myself through it. And it is an ordeal. It really is bleak. I mean, it's relentlessly bleak. Gosh, it's oh, it's excruciating. Um, but there's something kind of about the assuredness of the direction and the central performances from these two women who play friends kind of reunited at the end of the Second World War in uh, Leningrad. And... Uh, just there's something about their performances and their chemistry and the direction which kind of means that it's 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 kind of compelling in a way that doesn't make it feel too exploitative in terms of just the relentlessly bleak storyline and there's these fragments of hope which are, are kind of really beautiful even though ultimately it's just relentlessly grim but uh, yeah great to see and uh, yeah just the the central character uh, Ilya, uh the character who plays Ilya who's um uh, the beanpole of the title she's yeah got extraordinary presence um, a really captivating kind of central performance so yeah very pleased to have seen that um, in terms of the things that I'm looking forward to yeah the usual ones that are kind of seem to be the highlights for people at all the festivals so things like Portrait of a Lady on Fire I'm really excited about The Lighthouse I know you've talked about as well yeah. um, I think James definitely saw that um, and then Uncut Gems as well, the Safety Brothers film uh, with Adam Sandler, yeah, 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 yeah. as you know. Yeah, yeah. As you know, I will be there for Adam. <laughs> An Adam advocate, a Sandlicate. There you go. A Sandlicate. I'll be a Sandlicate, <laughs> yeah, to, to the grave. But I think what's interesting is, you know, it, it, he's getting deserved 
kind of praise for something that I've been alone, one of the few lone champions for, although I know that he's not done too much work in this area. But anytime he's doing something where he's pushing himself, I'm excited because I think he's great. Um, well, the, the two other films that I'm interested in sort of seeing are uh, Making Waves, the, the art of sound design, which we're going to have an episode on because you had a great interview with the filmmaker there. And then uh, Rose Plays Julie, which is the new De- Desperate Optimists um, outing for Christine uh, Malloy and Joe Lawler, uh, who are filmmakers that we love. And, and we're delighted to say we're going to have an episode on that as well. And I know that's something that you were particularly taken by. Yeah, I think it, it, it was the best thing that I saw at the festival. I mean, granted, I only saw five films, but there was a, a, a couple of other things. I saw Seaberg and um, and then the the report was okay. It was a, it was Adam Driver procedural about the the torture report and Seaberg again. Both of those films had a sort of post nineteen seventies paranoid conspiracy film debt to them, so they they were kind of up my alley to begin with. But the, neither of them. But, you know, they, they were both films that were interesting and I, I enjoyed watching them, but would never figure on any kind of like, oh, yeah, wow, you've got to see this. Yeah. You know what I mean? Just a note on that. Sorry, because yeah. have you seen Spotlight? I have, yes. Yeah, because I saw it for the first time last week and I was really taken by that. Yeah, yeah And yeah. I'd slept on it and there was something and that felt that it made me want. I think I I put the report on my watch list because you know, because of Spotlight. So it's interesting that you... Yeah, yeah, yeah. You saw, and I think it's in that kind of vein, am I right? Yeah, I, kind of think, yeah. I, I think it is. I think the, the thing about the report was that I felt that the... I mean, I just said it there on when we were talking about it, the, that I felt that the director had so much reverence for the material that it ceased to be a film. He tried to make it a kind of dramatised document of, you know, this political era and and while the subject matter is absolutely fascinating and in a way how do you broach that subject of a you know a thousand thousands and thousands of pages of this report that was written over so many years and like make it a sort of human story you know it was so reverent to that material it has to be taken seriously that it that it became slightly stayed in a way um Seaberg I I thought was really interesting so this was about the actress you know, the famous French New Wave actress Jeanne Seberg and her involvement with the civil rights movement and particularly the Black Panthers. And that was an interesting, because I think it did, it very much owed a debt to the conversation. Um, and and a really great performance again by, by Kristen Stewart, who is, you know, so good, I think, at sort of making these very, what could be sort of very film star roles into something that has a little bit more depth. But I didn't think the film worked as a whole in kind of its structure and its pacing and what it was actually trying to do. But again, it's something I kind of enjoyed watching. But just to get back to Lawler and Malloy, yeah. I mean, I, I love their films and they're just so beautifully made. And the sound was just amazing. And and like it was set in these three environments that that, that, that kind of were, were symbolic, but then but then really did contribute to the narrative end point of the film really so and beautifully acted by by i must shout out the 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 two leads Anne skelly who looks a bit like a young jodie coma um you know from killing eve and but it's just sort of much more vulnerable and has this sort of vulnerability but but there was a real sort of edge to her as well if at any moment you thought oh that this this young character is gonna really do something kind of drastic you know and then all the brady played played the mother character so they were mother daughter but estranged I don't want to give too much away because I think people should come to this fresh. It's one of those films that's that defies genre. You go into it and it's 
it's scored as if almost as if it's a horror film or a you know a really sort of dark thriller and then Aidan Gillen turns up as the father character who's the connecting point between the two and again I'm not going to give away why but he he's very good at this real banality of the of the evil white mediocre man as this sort of evil character but there's something kind of quite sadistic about his mediocrity you know which is really really kind of interesting and and just it was funny because I was sort of in the first third I was like mm, what's this film trying to do where, where is this film positioning in itself and it's almost as if you have to let set that to one side no this is Lawler and Malloy they're not falling into genre traps and they're or they're trying to sort of not be bounded by by those those notions of oh we're making a sort of genre movie so therefore it's got to do this that and the other and Really, really interesting piece of work that I think that that on first viewing for many people would be like, oh, that, that was a sort of weird off-kilter drama, thriller, horror, psychological movie, you know. And, and I'm really, really looking forward to them being on the podcast and, and discussing the film in more in more detail. Great. Yeah. Uh, very excited by a new film uh, from those folks. And yeah, uh, pleased that you got to see it at its uh, at its premiere, which is really really exciting. So, yeah, anything else you wanted to flag up or? No, I don't think so. Just to say that James and a couple of other listeners and uh, contributors to the podcasters have asked us if we're going to talk about Joker. Yeah, and I think we are going to talk about it, but maybe on the next episode when we're we're releasing Speed, the because you screened Speed down there at Falmouth. Yeah, so that'll be the next episode. So that that taping's already been done. And there's a couple of points that were raised in the the post-film Q&A about ideology and certain types of character on screen, you know, particularly in the kind of context of the 90s and then almost like in a post-9-11 shift in Hollywood, which I think will lead us to be able to talk about it in some depth in an interesting way. And it gives me time to see it. Um, yeah. James messaged me earlier and said that he'd spoken to you about it on the podcast and I said oh does that mean I don't have to watch it now but uh, <laughs> he said unfortunately no because it was very short and I do want to see it you know I do want to see yeah, I, do, yeah. I, love, I love Joaquin and I've read so much about it now from so many different sides I have to kind of see I have to kind of see it for myself which I'm glad I've come to it that way because um, I don't really have a like I don't have a what do they say I don't have a uh, you don't have skin in the game really yeah 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 I don't have a dog. I don't have, yeah, I have no skin in the game. I have no dog in this fight, you know. So, um, yeah, I, I think, and I'm looking forward to talking about it uh, with you uh, on the podcast because I think that, you know, we'll we'll just have a kind of cinematologist conversation about it, which I think is, is really exciting. No, and I mean, I posted maybe two things about it and got some comeback. I, I very rarely get, you know, issues on, on, on Twitter, but I, and they were not even issues, but I got people being slightly annoyed in terms of what I'd and it wasn't anything that I'd, I didn't say anything but in fact I liked the film but I think I'm as a as a fan of you were never really here as much as I am I'm really interested to 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 see what you make of it not you know again because we don't have to compare films you know this is better than that but just having having a reverence for that film and the fact that it hasn't got the the play in in the cultural in the culture that we think it should have done, and then to see Joker get the play, you know, it's it's interesting to to, to sort of come at it from that angle, which is probably our angle. Yeah, I think that's yeah. I mean, that's you know, some of us have been waving the Joaquin flag for for years and years, you know, uh, and there's something there is something miffing about 
joker being the film, oh, wasn't he a great actor? You know, and it's yeah, like, yeah, well, yeah. you know. But, Where were you? <laughs> but, but, then, but then, yeah, but then also you understand that this was a 200 million pound, 200 million dollar movie with a 200 million dollar publicity budget. So, yeah, I'm looking forward to, to kind of getting into that. And, 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 yeah, and kind of looking at his career and, uh, and talking about what it means um, and hopefully what it means for films like You Were Never Really Here as well. So, yeah, cool. Well, yeah, already excited about that. Uh, thank you to all of the contributors uh, to this episode. And uh, as Dario mentioned earlier, you can catch uh, the full extended interview with Kate and Michael on the Patreon. Uh, you can also find us on all the usual socials. Um, we look forward to hearing from you uh, about anything that you've uh, you've heard here that you want to kind of bring up and chat about. But uh, until next time, thank you, Dario. Thank you very much, Neil. Looking forward to it very much. Indeed. Uh, thanks, everyone, for listening. This has been the Cinematologist Podcast. They tumble and fight They are beautiful On the hilltops at night